0: This is the Trails Church podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 25. As you make your way there, let me invite you to look around this room for a moment as I give you a quick tour of our portable sanctuary and show you how it is intentionally arranged. As our setup team arrives each Sunday morning to reconfigure the cafeteria, they bring in specific furniture for a specific reason. An AV booth is uh, strategically set up in the back to help support uh, the technical elements of our service. A wooden offering box is placed by the door as a reminder of God's generosity to us and our ongoing response to him. Chairs are arranged in rows, which allows us to accommodate this ever-growing congregation. Screens, TV screens, flank the platform which project the lyrics of the hymns that we sing as well as the sermon outline. And finally, one piece of furniture is strategically placed right in the middle of the congregation, the pulpit. I didn't begin my tour of the room by calling attention to it, but if we were to think about the furniture that adorns any modern sanctuary, we would likely mention two specific pieces, the communion table which we don't have right now, but Lord willing, when we move into our own space, we'll have one that sits somewhere into the front. And also, the pulpit. The communion table and the pulpit each preach a sort of silent sermon, even when nothing is happening around them. The pulpit declares the importance and centrality of God's Word in the life of a local church. The communion table speaks... Of the mercy of Christ demonstrated to his church as his body was broken, as his blood was spilled, so that we might be redeemed. These two pieces of furniture communicate what is at the center of Christian worship God's word and his gospel. Of course, the focal point of Christian worship is not placed on anything, not a pulpit, nor a table nor anything made. Christian worship is focused on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Jesus is the true and unchanging center of our worship. And each Lord's Day, guys, don't miss this. This is a precious privilege to gather around the fountain of Christ together and be renewed and refreshed as we exalt (coughs) Him, as we exalt Him, Uh, we are witnesses of and participants in a living miracle each week. Now, you might look around the room at a bunch of people who just did their best to forward their clocks an hour, but if you look again, this is a miracle of what God has done. Each of us born enemies of God and born enemies of one another. Now reconciled through the blood of Christ, restored to relationship with God, restored to relationship with one another. This is a picture of a miracle every single Lord's Day. The last time we opened our Bibles to Exodus, we began our study of the tabernacle where God would dwell among his people. This section of Scripture stretches from Exodus 25 all the way to uh, chapter 40, the very end of the book of Exodus. Now, God gave the Ten Commandments, an incredibly significant portion of Scripture to his people in 17 verses. You know, those were added in the 16th century, but 17 verses. However, his words on the instruction and completion of the tabernacle Span a stunning 445 verses over 13 chapters containing detailed description on this portable sanctuary. Why so much attention? Why so much ink spilled, given to this place? Why is it so significant? Well, because it was here that God would begin to restore what was broken by the fall. He would once again welcome people, his people, into his presence. This section of scripture mattered to Israel long ago, and it matters to us today as it teaches us about the worship of God and specifically how it points us to the glories of Christ. There's a lot of ground to cover in the coming weeks as we take this tour if you will, through the section of Scripture on the tabernacle. And today we begin that tour. As God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle, the place he began had nothing to do with its structure or foundation or the floor plan. He began with a piece of furniture. Within the Holy of Holies sat the holiest object within the portable sanctuary a little silent sermon called the Ark of the Covenant. It was here that the sacred tablets containing God's word were stored. It was here that the blood was applied to provide covering for the sin of Israel. It was here that God would meet with and speak to his people. We'll look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 10 to 22 under two headings. First, the witness of the ark, and second, the promise of the mercy seat. If you're able to, let me invite you to stand to your feet as we read now from God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, still speaks to us today. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it. And put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it. And two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood. And overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. To carry The ark by them. The poles shall remain in the ark, in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. First, let us examine the witness of the ark, verses 10 to 16. The Ark of the Covenant would be difficult to overemphasize in the story of the Old Testament. As Israel has been commanded multiple times, we've read, to worship God with no images, to worship the invisible God. Here, an Ark is this God-mandated, visible expression of His reality, of His nearness. More than materials, the Ark was designated as the place where the holy, fiery presence of God would dwell among his people. So uh, it demands a sense of respect as we discuss this, a sense of wonder. We're going to look at the ark practically and also theologically as we consider the composition, the construction, and the content of the ark. Again, we'll look at the composition, the construction and the content of the ark. And I do hope you appreciate my use of Baptist alliteration in these categories. First, the composition of the ark. The ark of the covenant was a simple wooden box made from the acacia tree, and it was overlaid with pure gold, both inside and out, gold fit for a king. Also required were four rings of gold, And two poles made of acacia wood, also overlaid with gold. And those are the materials listed. As we think about what the ark was made of, we should also understand what it is. Though it's the same word in our English translations of the Bible, this is not the same Hebrew word used of Noah's ark. That is a different use of the word. The kind of box being described here is used in Genesis 50, verse 26, to describe Joseph's coffin. Which, don't forget, Joseph's coffin is still with the Israelites at Sinai. They're taking his bones to the promised land. It's also the same word used uh, to describe an offering box as they're rebuilding the temple in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 9. But this is the, the composition of the ark. It's wood, gold, pure gold. What about the construction of the ark? The blueprint for how to build the box is laid out for Moses in these verses using the ancient Hebrew measurement of cubits. Now, if you were at Home Depot this week trying to sort out how to build something, you didn't ask for anything in the measurement of cubits, did you? No. But we don't use the metric system that most of the the entire world uses. Here in our country, we use the much older system, imperial system, where things are measured by feet and inches. Well, Moses measured in cubits. A cubit is the length of measurement between the bend in an elbow, a man's elbow, to the length of his middle finger. Now, we have some men in our church that are six feet seven Their arms are going to be longer than others. So obviously this is a variable size, but just generally it's the size between the bend in the elbow and the tip of the middle finger. Um, And so this box would have been smaller than four feet long, three feet wide, and three feet tall. Four feet wide, uh, long, three feet wide, three feet tall. As a boy, my parents kept a hope chest at the end of their bed. Anybody have a hope chest in your house? A few people. I think that's probably a good size. Most of them aren't quite, quite three feet tall, but you would get the, a good range of how big the Ark of the Covenant is if you'd think about a hope chest. Kids, this would be like kind of a big toy chest. How many of you have a toy chest at home? I don't think people use those anymore. <laughs> um, notice this box is not to sit on the ground. It's elevated off the ground by feet that are attached to it, lifting it up, elevating it. There's also decorative molding added. We don't get the reason for why, but I think as we look at the rest of the witness of the tabernacle, it must have been for beauty. We'll hear that over and again. These gold rings called for were to be fixed to the ark permanently. And then these acacia wood poles covered in gold are then permanently fixed in those rings so that any time the ark was to move, and it would move every time God led his people somewhere else, it was ready to go. They would not touch the ark. No one would. They would only touch the poles. Well, What about the content of the ark? The ark was a depository for some of the most precious objects in the life of Israel. It was made to contain something, and its contents reveal the mind, the heart, the will of God. Verse 16 records God telling Moses to put the testimony inside the ark, which Scripture later calls the two tablets of the testimony. Well, where do we see two written tablets containing testimony? Well, this is is a synonym for describing the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are supposed to go within the holiest object in the Holy of Holies. Yet there are other holy objects placed in the ark as well. In Exodus 16, 31-34, God instructs Aaron to put in this ark, even before it's built, a jar filled with manna, which if we're not careful... We will forget that every time we're opening the book to Exodus, God is still providing supernaturally for his people food from the sky. Have you forgot that? Don't forget. That's why this manna is put into the Ark of the Covenant. So God's people would not forget his supernatural provision and also his supernatural power. In Numbers 17, 10, and 11, God instructs Moses to place Aaron's staff a dead piece of wood which blossomed and flowered and produced almonds to put that staff also in the ark. The New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, articulates that again, repeats that all three of those precious possessions were placed within the ark of the covenant. Now, that description is incredibly practical, isn't it? Because Moses has to know what to build and what goes in there. But it is also incredibly theological. John Currid writes, The ark was to be the object at the very center of the worship of the Israelites. The ark was to be the object at the very center of the worship of the Israelites. Because the ark is the focal point of the tabernacle. The focal point of God's presence, it is a holy thing. And it cannot be touched by anyone except the high priest. And that's only one day a year. We'll read that in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4. Let me tell you the story of a man named Uzzah. Kids, have you ever heard the story of a man named Uzzah? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, you're in for a treat. I see you back in the back there, hand. Um, Uzzah was a man who accidentally touched the Ark. Many years after this passage in Mount Sinai, King David ruled on the throne and decided he would take the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. However, instead of carrying the Ark by the poles on the shoulders of priests, which is how it was meant to be carried, he decided it would be Carried by a cart on the shoulders of an ox. So it's meant to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. And David decides, we will take it to Jerusalem. It's heavy, it's a long trip. Let's put this on the cart, and an ox will take it. So as they traveled, they came to a field that was soft. It was a threshing floor, actually. And the ox somehow stumbled. As the Ark begins to topple over, Uzzah reaches out to save the Ark. He stretches out his hand to touch the Ark of the Covenant, which God had said, don't touch. He's trying to be useful. He's reacting in the moment. He's reaching out his hand to stop it. But no one was supposed to touch the Ark. And immediately, the righteous anger of God struck Uzzah. And he died right there in front of his friends. His body dropped beside the ark of God. If you want to read that account on your own, you'll find it in Second Samuel chapter 6. The story of Uzzah is a memorable lesson for God's people to never be flippant when it comes to the things of God, nor His word, nor His worship, but to be careful, walking in obedience to every word of God. Before we move on, let me highlight, I believe how this passage teaches us to treasure the Word of God. Inside the Holy of Holies, tucked in the holiest place, is the holiest article in the tabernacle. And what we find there is the Word of God. Now, we stand each week for the reading of God's Word, and I love this old church tradition. But let me ask Do you stand on God's word throughout the week? It's a wonderful thing for us to come and open scripture, but it is the precious gift of God that's been given to us in the unfolding of his scripture in our lives. You don't need a priest or a preacher or anyone else to open this book and to be taught by God. You can go directly to him at any time. Hear from him. How often do you think, I wish I could hear God's voice? Open his word and you will. Open his word and you will. The longest chapter of the longest book in the Bible is Psalm 119, which gives us 176 reasons to treasure the word of God. Brothers and sisters, what was tucked behind the veil within the Ark of the Covenant has now been revealed to us given to us and is meant to be treasured in our hearts, hidden in our hearts and bear fruit. So let's keep standing in honor for the reading of God's word, but let's stand on it with each day that passes. The witness of the ark was that God had made a covenant to his people and he had spoken to them. The witness of scripture is that God has made a covenant with us and spoken to us in these last days in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's now investigate the promise of the mercy seat. This is our second heading, verses 17 to 22. The second distinct piece of furniture is actually not separate from the Ark of the Covenant. Rather, it completes it. This sacred lid enclosed the Ten Commandments. It served as the footstool for the throne of God. And even designated the place where blood covered the sins of God's Chosen people. Now, notice carefully, there's no wood involved in this. No. The mercy seat would be made of pure gold, solid gold. And the dimensions given here match the ark below so that it rested perfectly atop the ark. Now, before we look at the significance of the seat itself, let me draw your attention to these angelic figures that rise up from each side. Cherubim are special angels, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. Once Adam and Eve had broken God's law and command, they were removed from the Garden of Eden, and God put two cherubim with flaming swords in order to protect the holy presence of God and to keep people from the tree of life. Uh, These cherubim have been called palace guards for the king of kings. I love that. No specific description is given of them here, except these angels symbolically. These aren't actual angels. These are man-made things that, that represent a greater reality in heaven. And these cherubim symbolically keep watch over the mercy seat as they face one another. Their heads look down on the mercy seat as their wings spread upward to God. Now, the prophet Ezekiel, when he begins his book, Chapter 1, verses 4-14 through provides some incredible detail. Uh, His prophetic vision begins with this dark storm pushing in from the north. And a part of that storm, it's bringing a dark cloud. From within the cloud are flashes of lightning and thunder. Sound familiar? In that great cloud was not just fire flashing, but also cherubim. And Ezekiel does this all to wrap language around them. He says they were angelic beings with four faces each, and they possessed multiple animal characteristics. They glowed with the appearance of fire. They darted around fast like flashes of lightning. It sound pretty remarkable. Our text doesn't say much more about these cherubim, so I won't either, but there's one thing I want us to make sure we don't miss is that these are a symbol of a greater heavenly reality. You heard it already this morning in the call to worship, Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And in this room, which we will soon know to be as the Holy of Holies, the God who is the theme of angel's praise chose to make his footstool his earthly throne right in the midst of his people exalted and at the same time made low glorified and condescended and then we read earlier psalm 99:5 exalt the lord our god worship at his footstool that's the word holy is he. The mercy seat is the place where a couple of very important things happen. First, it's the place where atonement for sin was made. The English word seat, your your Bible probably calls this a mercy seat, and it does not refer, refer to a seat like you're sitting right now in rows of chairs, nor does it refer to a royal throne. The word seat in English has a range of meaning that includes nuances like the seat of power or the seat of government. And that is the meaning of seat here. This mercy seat was the center, was the source of mercy, which all focuses on the idea of atonement. The name for mercy seat comes from the Hebrew word, which means to make atonement. So mercy, how does God's mercy seem? by making atonement, specifically for sin. The mercy seat was actually only used one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would humbly go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for sin. That word atonement shows up in our English Bibles because of, uh, first, because of Martin Luther using that language in the German Bible, and then William Tyndale was the first person to use that in English. That word atonement, if you spread it out, at one mint, At-one-ment. So this is how God has pursued relationship with mankind, even in light of their sin, by, through the blood, making us at one. Making us at peace with God. Well, the high priest would go in and offer two sacrifices. First, one for himself, and then one on behalf of all of the people. You can read the full account in Leviticus chapter 16. What he would do is uh, make the sacrifice outside and come in and then sprinkle that the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, symbolically showing that blood had been shed for sin. Uh, the term that the scripture uses throughout, and the term actually used right here, is propitiation. This is a substitutionary sacrifice that appeased and satisfied the righteous anger of God toward sin. So in this ark, God had made provision for their holiness by giving Israel his word, and he made provision for their sin by giving them a mercy seat. We see each of these pieces of furniture speaking The mercy seat is also where communion with God would occur. And don't miss this. In verse 22, we read the promise of God that he will meet with Moses and speak with him here at this place. God is invisible, but he is not inaudible. He is the God who reveals himself, the God who wants to be known by his people. And God will meet with Moses at the mercy seat. He will speak to him from it, from this empty void between the cherubim where God has chosen to make his earthly throne. He will meet with Moses and speak with him. As I thought about the ark and the mercy seat this week, I could not get over the incredible symbolism that this holds. And I didn't show you a picture, but uh, there's, you can find many of them online. But I want to remind you that none of the people saw this ark anyway. It was hidden behind multiple veils. And so they wouldn't have seen it anyway. they just hear it described like we find in God's word. But think about this description. Settled in the Ark of the Covenant itself is the law of God. God's righteous rules and instruction. Okay? Above the Ark that holds the tablets, the glory of God, the presence of God, the holiness of God. And between the holiness of God and the law given is the mercy seat of God. Why the mercy seat? Because God knew in giving his people these laws and commands, they would never keep them. He knew there must be blood shed in order for an unholy people to approach a holy God. So God made provision right there in the Ark of the Covenant and on the mercy seat How could a holy God show mercy to sinners? How could God bring sinful people into his presence? He made a way through the shedding of blood. Philip Ryken points out how the New Testament often describes the saving work of Jesus using this very phrase, the mercy seat, which is translated propitiation, propitiation. So when you hear propitiation you think mercy seat. Hebrews 2:7 says that Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Romans 3:25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 1 John 4:10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation For our sins. The word the New Testament uses in each one of those references specifically points to the sacrifice poured, sprinkled on the mercy seat. So, brothers and sisters, Christ, the cross of Christ, is our mercy seat where our blood has been covered over by the blood of the Lamb. I want you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We're going to read the little section from verse 9 to 14. As we think about the mercy seat given by God to his people in Exodus 25. You cannot miss this. Beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted. This is Jesus speaking. Okay, This is Jesus telling a parable. And Luke says, To some who trusted in themselves, they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The actual phrase in Greek is, God, be mercy seated to me. God, be mercy seated to me. The very phrase that we read in Exodus when describing the Ark of the Covenant. This man knew he could never keep God's laws and commands and approach the Holy God. He needed the mercy of God. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And so here's, here's my question to everyone in shot of my voice. Have you been mercy? Seated. Like this man who knew he could never keep the rules and never earn the forgiveness of God, he cried out at the, end of his, at the end of himself and said, God, have mercy to me. Show me mercy. Maybe you came here with no mercy. Maybe this is the very moment the Holy Spirit would Show you the holiness of God and the depth of your sin and call your heart to life in Him. How does that happen? By receiving the gift of faith, by believing in Jesus alone as the one whose blood was shed. Are you mercy seated? Jesus says this man went home justified. He went home cleansed, his sin covered, his heart made new, his eternal life secure. Do you have those things? And then the response from this text to each of us who are in Christ is What a joy to think about being this people who are now mercy-seated, whose sins are covered over, whose hearts are made new, whose life is now hidden in Christ. What a miracle. We have been brought to the source of all mercy. The source is nothing less than Jesus. As God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle... The place he began had nothing to do with its structure or foundation or the floor plan. He began with a piece of furniture. Within the Holy of Holies sat the holiest object within this portable sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant. It was here that the sacred tablets containing God's word would be kept. It was here that propitiation, bloodshed for sin would be made. It was here that God would meet with his people. Brothers and sisters, for us who are in Christ, it is in Christ alone that God's word would take on flesh and incarnate and dwell among us. It's in Christ and his blood that we would receive the mercy of God for our sin. And it is in Christ that God would once and for all meet with us and speak with us, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. God, as we come to passages like this, I pray that we would see your burning holiness of our need for the mercy that you alone provide and that we would, like, like the second man in that story, just come to you with utter desperation and need, never forgetting that we've not outrun our need for your mercy. And let us look to Christ and treasure Christ with every step as your people. And ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.